Welcome everybody to this Mile End Institute podcast. Today I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Ian Dale, who has a new book out, Why Can't We All Just Get Along, Shout Less, Listen More. Ian presents the evening show on LBC Radio, and he's also, interestingly, visiting professor of politics and broadcasting at the University of East Anglia. He hosts a podcast with former Home Secretary Jackie Smith called For the Many, and he does other podcasts as well. Ian was also the managing director of Britain's leading political publisher, Bite Back Publishing. He's a political commentator and a blogger, really very much uh, a man of many talents. Welcome, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. Well, actually, I was a a little bit worried about uh, interviewing such a great interviewer, uh, not least because when it comes to the book, I actually agree with uh, an awful lot of what you say in the book. And I note that you do say in the book that agreement makes for a rather boring radio (laughs) podcast. (laughs) So uh, I I should start out by saying that there is one thing I disagree with, but we can discuss it later, which is when you talk about prime ministers and you talk about um, prime ministers who are both original thinkers and uh, super salesmen, and you mentioned only Churchill falling into that category. And I'd argue actually that Harold Macmillan probably outshines him in both, but perhaps we can talk about that and about books uh, a little bit later. I I thought we'd start off actually at the back of the book. What there is, is an incredibly long acknowledgement section. Mm. And you don't just sort of name drop the famous there, you name check uh, an awful lot of people who have contributed to your career over the years, not least actually Matt Harris, your former producer and actually a former student of yes, mine. So it was indeed. great to see Matt get a get a name check there. But also you He you got go slightly right. more than a name check, didn't he? He did, he <laughs> did. He actually got mentioned and, and praised this guy in the text itself. But you also mention, you know, your teachers going right back, I think, yeah. to, to junior school and indeed to, to university, which is lovely. And I mentioned before that you were a visiting professor at, at UEA. Are you still doing that? And tell us what, what you do there. Yes, I am. Um, the reason I did that extensive acknowledgement section at the end was because I think, well, you, you don't have an awful lot of public opportunities to thank people for what they've done for you uh, in your life. And I thought this was probably the biggest book that I'm ever going to write. So I thought, well, why not? I'd, I actually got the idea from a, another book that I'd, I'd read. And so, yes, it, it is quite extensive. But I think it is important to acknowledge mm. that I haven't, oh God, this sounds so arrogant, but I, I haven't got where I am today on my own. Um, Hillary Clinton uh, memorably said it takes a village, although I don't think that was originally a quote from her. I can't remember who said it originally. And it it does. It takes a hell of a lot of people to contribute to someone's life to get them where, where they want to be. And I mean, UEA has played a huge part in my life. It was, I don't know about the best four years of my life, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was the university I wanted to go to because it did the course I wanted to do. I was studying German, but I didn't want to do German literature. And there weren't many universities that offered courses where you could combine German with with other things so it was actually German linguistics and teaching English as a foreign language I, I, I should never have done linguistics I absolutely loathed it particularly German linguistics so uh, I got I got a 2-1 which was probably uh, more than I thought I would I would get uh, Richard Evans uh, oh, Sir Richard Evans I should call him now as my history tutor in, in my first year and I could tell then that he, he was certainly going to go places he taught us Austrian and East German history and I just had the most wonderful time it's I, I suppose I cut my political teeth as well. I formed mm-hmm. a conservative association because there wasn't one there before. This was in the early 1980s. It was a very left-wing university at the time. But, uh, and this has a parallel to today, there were lots of shy Tories there. As we found out 
in when we formed the Conservative Society, we got more members than the Labour Club did. And then when the 83 election came along, the number of Conservative posters in the windows of the student accommodation was just astonishing. I, I was really, really surprised. And two Labour seats in Norwich became two Conservative seats in Norwich. And that was partly down to the university. So I was really honoured to be asked to be a visiting professor there. It was actually Charles Clark, of all people, that, that brought it about, I think. I actually don't do as much as I would like to do. I go and do some talks on the current state of politics, um, broadcasting. Um, I do sort of interviews there. It's not it's not a paid job. And I just, I mean, if they ask me to do something, I do. It's as simple as that. What do you say then to people who say, and, and you know, something you hear very often, actually, to be honest, from conservatives, that, you know, there are too many people going to universities these days. What's your, what's your view on that? I don't think arbitrary targets are a good thing. I think if someone has the aptitude to go to university, they should go to university. It's as simple as that. When I went to university in 1981, I think 17% of 18 year olds went to university. That would not be appropriate today. But there are many people who go to university who should not go And the reason that they go is because they're pressurised to go because they think they're a failure if they don't. And I don't know what dropout rates now are, but there was one former polytechnic that had a 25% dropout rate in the first year. Now, no one's telling me that anyone was doing a favour to an 18-year-old who was told, yes, you should go to university, that'll get you on in life. And then they drop out in the first year because they will get an automatic sense of utter failure from that. So I don't know what the solution is, but but we've always been bad at marketing vocational and technical education in this country. And for some people, that's a much better way of going into higher or further education than just automatically going to university because everyone else you know is. Mm. Um, Following the herd is never a good idea. And I know plenty of people who've made a great success of their lives who probably got better results than I did at A-level, but did not go to university. Mm. You don't have to go to university to succeed in life. Um, Somebody you'll know, my former PA, Grant Tucker, who came from a council estate in Newport in South Wales. He came to work for me at the age of 17, started at Queen Mary. I don't think he ever completed the degree because he then got a chance of a really good job in a think tank and has ended up as a journalist on the Sunday Times. He could easily have got a good academic education, but he took the opportunities that came his way and I mean, good on him. Yeah, and I've got to say, he was great fun in in class and in yeah. seminars as, uh, as well. What do you think about the decline in in people taking foreign languages? I mean, it's interesting that you took German. You don't hear of many people, you know, who who are doing that these days. There is a bit of a crisis in foreign language teaching. Do you think that's a pity? Do you think that's a big disadvantage for Britain as a country? I think it is a pity. Uh, what it was bizarre in two thousand and four, I spoke at a demonstration at UEA against the closure of the languages department there. Because if you think about it, Norwich is the biggest city near to uh, the continent. And it had a fantastic languages department, not just French and German, but they they would teach Norwegian, Danish, Swedish. Finnish. I think they were one of the only universities to do that. And then it all went. And and I felt really sad that the opportunity that I had had was not going to be available to 
the kids of today. UEA now has a huge amount of international students who I think would have benefited from having that kind of department there. Um, It's one of these universities that when I was there would have probably been quite a way down the league table, but now it's in the top dozen or top 15 generally. Mm. I think there's about 20,000 students now compared to 4,000 when I was there. It's just expanded so massively, which is a great thing, but it is kind of reliant on international students to make it work financially I suspect so it'll be interesting to see how that works over the next few years but I mean people generally speak English and we are we've always been a lazy nation in terms of learning languages at my school in Essex we weren't allowed to study German unless we were good at French well I was not good at French but each class had to put 10 pupils in to do German and I was better than most of the others in the class even though I didn't enjoy French we had useless French teachers in my Mm. first few years there and I was useless at German when I started as well but it was only when I came back from a school exchange to Germany this has been 1977 And we did about a couple of weeks after that, we did our end of year exams and I came top of the class. Mm. And my teacher thought I'd cheated purely because something had clicked in my brain during that visit Mm. to Germany. Mm. And I remember very well him saying to me once in German, why did you say that? Why did you put it that way? And I said, I don't know, thinking he would then have a real go at me. And he said, well, that's, you're, you're on the road to fluency then. German was really the thing at the school that I enjoyed most, the thing that mm. I was best at. And I wasn't, I was a bit of a late developer. I wasn't a grade A student at school at all. And I decided I wanted to teach German. So I I had a gap year in 1980. I worked in a German equivalent of Stoke Mandeville, a hospital for paraplegics. Mm -hmm. And that really made me fluent. So when I went to UEA, I was a year older than everyone else. It made me become an adult. It was the first time I'd been away from home. Mm -hmm. And I was fluent. Germans could not tell that I was English. And I'm always really proud of that. And it's horrible now when I go back to Germany and speak because I'm not totally fluent now because I just don't have the opportunity to speak it any longer. Now, there is a tendency, and actually it's, it's become in some ways particularly pronounced during this you know, COVID-19 crisis to, for, for British people who are you know, worried about what's going on in the United Kingdom and worried that we're not doing as good a job as we might to look across at Germany and see it as an example. I mean, do you think we're too naive in that sense? Or do you think you know, the, the Germans have got things right that perhaps we could learn from in all sorts of ways, not just COVID-19? We do tend to look at Germany in a slightly idealistic way nowadays. Mm. That uh, John Kampfner has written this book, Why, Why the Germans Do It Better. And they do do some things better. We do some things better than them. I mean, it's it's not a zero-sum game. Mm. And the Germans have done a lot of things in recent years, which, I mean, if you talk to people in Germany, they do not have this um, idealised view of their government or the German state as this sort of perfect entity in any shape or form. But I remember when I first went there, they would literally laugh at Britain for being the sick man of Europe. Well, that that changed in the 1980s. In, it was all about strikes, really. Mm. And the Germans, I think, looked at us and thought, well, they they have changed their ways of doing things, not just in the economy, but in, in other ways too. And they they really respect all of our sort of cultural sector, uh, the arts and, and, and all of that. So it is like, I do find it slightly frustrating when the British media, and it's not just Germany, 
Um, you, you look at the problems that we have with coronavirus at the moment, and the huge mistakes have been made by our government. But you look across at France, and there's no scrutiny in the British media at what's happened mm. in France. And in many mm. ways, what's happened there is far worse than here. You look at the track and trace system, for example, that, that which has absolutely collapsed in France. Now, ours is a bit of a shambles, but it is at least functioning in, in some way, whereas theirs apparently is not. But you won't read about that in The Guardian. Let's move forward then to talking about um, your career as a, a radio presenter and a, indeed a podcast presenter. And that's something that you, you talk a lot about uh, in, in the book. Now, you say you look like a swan, uh, you know, moving calmly and serenely um, from the outside. But underneath, you know, you're paddling furiously. That is the impression that I think all great radio presenters uh, give. Um, but it, it strikes me in some ways, especially reading your book, that actually you're you're quite a natural. You, you took to it like a duck to water in some ways, didn't you? I was wondering why you think that was the case. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you think um, a medium that you've really made your own, radio, is is so special. What makes it different from TV or other forms of broadcasting? When I was at university and school, I either wanted to be a member of parliament or a radio presenter. I failed to get into parliament in 2005. And after 2010, when I I didn't get a seat because I'd started a new business and I took two years out of the selections, then I thought, you know, let's just give up on this. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to flog a dead horse. And the opportunity at LBC came long really coincidentally at that time. And I always felt in my bones that I'd be really good at radio. I just felt it was it was a natural thing for me. I'd done quite a lot of television punditry, but I've never enjoyed being on television. I, I do it still uh, because it brings people into the radio program. There, there is a method in my madness. I certainly don't <laughs> do it. I don't do it for the money because, as you know, if you appear on Good Morning Britain, you're not going to get rich out of that. So I, I never wanted to really be on television and radio just felt so natural to me. And I got an opportunity about 1999, I think it was, maybe 2000. I got an opportunity on Five Live. Uh, you may remember a programme called Sunday Service uh, on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. And it was, a sort of, it was a politics, but slightly satirical programme as well. And it was presented by Fee Glover, and she had Charlie Whelan and Andrew Pierce alongside her. They, they were the, 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 the three presenters. And one day, the producer of the programme, Joe Phillips, came into my shop, bookshop that I was running at the time, Politico's, and um, she she knew that I was a great fan of the programme. And she said, well, Andrew's off. Do you want to come and deputise? And I thought, well, my Christmases had come at once. This mm. was my opportunity. And I did about 20 of those programmes deputising for Andrew. And it went really well. And I kept thinking, why has no one come and sort of picked me up? I mean, I thought that was that was my showcase. Um, why hasn't someone talent spotted yeah. me? Um, I mean, Five Live was the pro, was a station that I would always listen to at the time, and it was just a dream to be on that program. But it didn't happen. So again, I'd kind of given up on that. So I'd started Total Politics and Bite Back Publishing uh, about two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. And then uh, in August 2009, Yasmin Alibaya Brown rang me up, um, who people can't really understand why I'm friends with her because we disagree on absolutely everything, but we just get on. And she said, Oh, I've got an audition at LBC. And I'd been on LBC quite a lot over the Iraq war. But when they, they stopped paying contributors, I thought, Well, I'm not 
I'm not going all the way out to Hammersmith and spending most of the morning uh, doing it and then not being paid for it. So I hadn't been on it for five or six years. And um, I said, well, how do you get how do you get that? I want to do it. So she gave me the name of the guy who ran it, who it turned out knew who I was through my political blog. And he said, well, why don't you come and do a joint audition with Yasmin? Because I'd said that I thought we could do a really good program together. And it was a disaster. We had to do this sort of 20-minute fake phone-in program where the producers would pretend to be members of the public. And Yasmin is a fantastic pundit. It just didn't work with all the radio bits, sort of teasing up to the news, introducing the travel and all that sort of thing. So I left there thinking, well, that's it. I'm never going to hear from them again. Three weeks later, they rang up and said, oh, could you come and present our evening program tonight because Petri Hoskin is ill? So I slightly gulped and I said, oh, well, with Yasmin? And they said, no, just you. Well, that was a little awkward. Um, but Yasmin's never held it against me and um, we, we get on very well to this day. Um, so that was the start. And I did some cover programs. I then, then did a month of covering for Petri. And that was really when they decided to hire me. I thought they might offer me one program at the weekend because I knew it was going mm. well. And then they offered me the evening show five mm. days a week. And what do you think radio's got over TV? I mean, obviously, you say you're more comfortable on one medium than the other. But what do you think for the listener um, that the radio gives them that watching the TV doesn't? A sense of intimacy. Um, I, I think a lot of people regard radio presenters that they listen to each day as their friend. And we've seen that particularly during coronavirus. Uh, I, I, I'm recording this podcast with you in my bedroom, where I did 90 programmes from when I was in lockdown. And you don't get much more intimate with a listener than broadcasting from your bedroom. <laughs> and although at the time I, I didn't really think of it in that way, somebody did say to me, probably in June or July, they said, you know, you've changed in the way that you broadcast. And I said, really? How? And they said, you, you just sound a lot more intimate. And I think that that was what coronavirus brought out in a sense, this need for reassurance and that reassuring voice. And I think I do have a, a soft, a re calm, a reassuring voice. I don't often get very frantic on the radio. I mean, it happens from time to time. And if I do, people sit up and take notice because they're not used to me speaking like that. And if there's breaking news of a bit, uh, I mean, a, a terror attack or whatever, which I have covered quite a few times, mm. you you do change your, your tone a little bit. It's not deliberate, but it's just, I suppose, it's the adrenaline that's flowing um, mm. a lot more. So I think people see you as a, as a friend. I often get stopped in the street and people tell me, and I've had so many emails uh, over the course of coronavirus saying, you don't know how important you've been in helping me get through this. And I think particularly the podcast that I do with Jackie Smith, For the Many, which shows a side of her that I think a lot of people hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. And although we do discuss very serious issues, we have a bloody good laugh as well. Uh, and again, people have come to view us as these friends that dip into their lives for an hour or two each weekend. And somehow it helps their mental health. I, I, I laughed when I heard this, first of all, but so many people have said it. They can't all be lying. Now, I mean, a, a lot of the book is about, um, you know, what the media has done to politics and what politics has done to the media. And at the end of the book, um, you, you, you put forward a few, as it were, you know, suggestions or even sort of rules for making 
life better in, in that regard. A lot of them to do with, you know, trying to um, develop some empathy, trying to assume the best, if you like, of the people that you're talking to on radio, and also actually about trying to develop a, a slightly longer attention span. I wanted to ask you, I mean, I, I agree with all of that, but isn't it really, really difficult to do that with the business model? And this is in, in, in some ways something you do bring up in the book, that um, radio stations, that TV stations, and, and the, especially social media operate with, which is the sort of quick hit, the big headline, yeah. the gotcha moment, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, you know, you, you, you can encourage people to develop all the the, the good qualities that you talk about uh, in the book but isn't that going to be very very difficult when we have the business model that in, in some ways relies on them not doing all of that to, to an extent yes I'm not arguing that every single program should become a 20-30 sort of minute interview program but I think there has to be that offering among the the programs that particularly the BBC offers and there isn't at the moment whether it's on radio or television, there are very few opportunities to really explore things in any great depth. Now, if you present a breakfast show, whether it's on radio or television or a drive time show, and I, I did the LBC drive time show for five years, so I, I know this, you, you, there has to be a degree of pace about it. People listen to the radio on a breakfast or drive time for an average of 20 minutes. So there is a there is an impetus to pack as much in as possible. And it's pacey, pacey, pacey. And when I started presenting Drive in 2013, I wonder whether I would be very good at it because I don't have a very pacey voice. I have to really make an effort to inject pace into it. And I used to deputise for Nick Ferrari. And I really thought that I mean, the breakfast show is the flagship show of the station. And it really you really have to get it right. And I remember uh, Lou, Louise Burt, who now runs BBC Essex, she used to be in the gallery. And before I would start the show, she would almost scream through the glass, big bollocks. And somehow that it was like getting a cattle prod in my side. It sort of just made me a much, made my voice bigger, made it more pacey. And I had to, I had to adapt really to that. But my mm. natural medium is not that. My natural medium is to talk at length to people, and I can do that on the evening show. I, I can do hour long interviews. Uh, the reason I do all, so many podcasts is because I want to exploit this medium. So I do um, a, pro, a podcast called Ian Dale All Talk, where I talk for an hour, or if it's going really well, why finish after an hour? I did one with Andrea Ledson the other day for, I think, an hour and 20 minutes. And I had so many people contact me afterwards saying, that was such a fantastic interview. I saw a side of Andrea Ledson that I've never seen before or never heard before. Well, I mean, go figure, because she'd never done an interview that long before. You can actually get in deep into someone's personality, into their motivations, into their goals. And I find this so often... And I, I really think broadcasters are missing a trick by not exploiting this more because the audience like it. If a politician just does a succession on a morning round of they might be doing 10 to 15 interviews on TV and radio, each one is going to be almost identical in the questions that are asked. They're going to give the same answers in each one. Job done. And who, who loses out on that? The poor bloody listener. And, and particularly where the, the interviewer, and this is the same whether it's the BBC, LBC or wherever, you as an interviewer are under pressure to get a news story, a news line. The, the politician just wants to escape un, unscathed, basically. That, that's the objective in an interview nowadays. 
And so the the interviewer, instead of having the time to maybe give a softball question just to get the interviewee relaxed, which is what I try to do generally, um, has to go in all guns blazing. Minister, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Why don't you resign? Now, I exaggerate to make a point, but the, the, the natural reaction of the politician is then to put up the shutters because they're under attack and they're human beings just like anybody else. And if you're under attack, you go on the defensive. So you just revert to the sound bites which your spin doctor has given you before you go into the studio. And again, who loses out here in that exchange? Do you think, I mean, there is still a role for public service broadcasting in this country? I mean, certainly among some Conservatives, and we'll get on to your politics in a moment, perceived as attacking the BBC or maybe even wanting to do away with the BBC and certainly with the BBC, you know, licence uh, fee. Uh, what's your view on that? Well, the problem that we've got is that debate on the BBC is almost impossible to have because if you criticise the BBC in any shape or form, you are then accused of wanting to abolish it. Now, I don't want to abolish the BBC. I think there is absolutely a place for a, a public broadcaster in this country. I think it would be appalling if the BBC disappeared. That doesn't mean to say that it shouldn't be reformed. That doesn't mean to say that it shouldn't look at what it does. And to my mind, if you're a public service broadcaster, news and current affairs should be front and centre of everything you do. It is lamentable that Britain doesn't have a, a, a sort of CNN-style international news operation. Now, the BBC will say, oh, yes, we do. It's called BBC World. Well, if you've ever watched BBC World, it, it, it is a pale imitation of a 24-hour news channel. If they actually combined the BBC News Channel and BBC World, maybe they could have the semblance of a decent news channel. But instead, whenever there have to be cuts at the BBC, they decide to make news and current affairs the sacrificial lamb. Because what they're trying to say to the government is, OK, you want us to make cuts, all right, we'll make them in the areas that you will notice, rather mm. than the myriad of other areas where they could make uh, probably quite a lot of savings. So they, they've lost so many different political programmes over the past couple of years. And um, their radio political coverage has suffered too. And I think it's a crying shame. I'm not going to be inhibited in my criticism of the BBC for the way it behaves. But that's not to say that I don't think it has a role and that I, that I want it to be abolished, because I don't. If you look at LBC's 15 to 24 listenership, I mean, you, you probably think that we have a very low 15 to 24 listenership. Um, but we don't. We actually have a thriving 20, 15 to 24 listenership. It's increasing year on year. We have more in that dem demographic than many music stations, which are aimed at young people. Mm. Yet the BBC has not managed to work out how to get those youngsters in to be the, the, the listeners and viewers of the next generation. So you, you, they try and pander to an audience in a rather patronising way. You look at Five Live now, where they've got rid of so many of their most of their best uh, broadcasters in the Five Live Sport Department, for instance, and replace them with people that I think are, are largely unlistenable. And it's a, it's such a shame what's happened to Five Live in in recent years. Where again, that that was my station of choice to listen to. Apart from Stephen Nolan, I can't remember the last time I listened to a program on that station. Now you might say, well, you're 58. They're not they're not aiming at you, but their average listenership is in the late 40s and they're mm. trying to reduce it by introducing presenters who just rather than being experts in their field they're just good at bants well 
I mean, Five Live ought to be better than just bants, I'm afraid. We have got that listenership because of what we've done on social media, that our station has done a brilliant job in making our output accessible to the, the younger generation who are not going to listen necessarily for 20 minutes at a time, but they'll watch a James O'Brien two-minute video clip. And therefore, if they like that, then they might switch on to the station mm-hmm. itself, which, I mean, we proved that they do that. The BBC has been appalling on social media in promoting its output. We've built this space age studio which looks great on social media clips. Radio 4 put a little pull-up banner up behind that presenter. And if you go into BBC studios, I mean, they're like most of them look as if they were built in the 1960s, and some of them inevitably probably were. They spent no money on upgrading their studio facilities as folks have in, well not in the studios i go into you just wonder where where the money goes well moving from from radio and, and to politics then i mean you make it pretty clear i think in the book that you've kind of mellowed over time politically perhaps you've become a little less partisan um but does that mean that you know if i if i cut ian dale in half i won't still see the words conservative <laughs> you know running through him uh you know, like a stick of Tunbridge Wells rock. I mean, uh, are you still a Tory? <laughs> I would self-identify as being on the right. Do I still identify as a Tory? Not really, if I'm honest. That has been a gradual process, I suppose. Look, I was steeped in the Conservative Party. I, I gave up my membership in 2010 when I joined LBC, not because they asked me to. I just didn't renew it. I didn't feel it was really appropriate. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean to say I've renounced all my beliefs at all. Mm. But what I have found over the last 10 years is that I've become probably a lot more, I don't know about left wing, but a lot more socially conscious. And that Mm. is because of LBC listeners. Um, If you do a programme on universal credit, which in your heart of hearts you think has some some merit to it, but then you get three middle-aged men in a row on a programme, on a drive-time programme, breaking down in tears because of what's happened to their universal credit application, you kind of think, well, this isn't working very well. When you hear people tell you the effect of the bedroom tax, which you can justify theoretically, but when you hear about how it works in practice, you you understand that there is a problem. When you look at immigration, which I've never been um, very anti-immigration at all, when you when you hear from people who've come to this country maybe illegally about the contributions that they've made uh, to this country and their motivations for coming here, you kind of want to change the narrative of the debate. I remember doing a phone-in once where I specifically asked people who had come here illegally to ring me up, tell me why they came, how they got here, and what's happened to them since they've been here. And it was a revelation. And I think anyone listening with a vaguely open mind on the subject would have had their eyes opened. Several of them were in charge of quite successful companies employing hundreds of people. They, they had come, fled from war zones. And the, the subliminal message that I wanted to get across was, don't treat immigrants as amorphous, anonymous groups of people who we give labels to. Look at the individual, listen to their story, and then you tell me that you wouldn't have done exactly the same thing in their place. When you put it in those terms, I think maybe the, the, the scales fall from people people's eyes. And, and, and then they appreciate that the overwhelming majority, and I'm talking sort of 95, 98% of people who come to this country, come here for perfectly understandable reasons, and they don't come here to fleece the benefit system. Uh, and that is where the media, I think, has played a, 
terrible role in this debate by trying to persuade people that that is exactly why people come here because we are so much more generous we ought to be really proud that people want to come here rather than france for example mm-hmm. and we should ask ourselves why that is because we often beat ourselves up about our race relations in this country but actually and, and there are many many imperfections and many problems which need to be overcome but generally We have done really well on that subject over the past um, few decades, much better than many other countries in Europe. And that Mm. is why people know that. They know it because their relatives tell them it. And and it always brings a sort of warm glow to my heart when I hear somebody who's come to this country from, I don't know, wherever in the world, and they say, I'm so grateful for what this country has given me. You also, uh, and it comes through very clearly in the book, are, are very pro-business. Do you worry about the attitude of the, the you know, present-day Conservative Party to, to business? You know, we have the famous phrase from the Prime Minister, which I won't repeat on this podcast. I mean, is that something you're concerned about? Yes, I am. I, I cannot understand how a Conservative government can bring in things like the loan charge, which I won't bore your listeners with it, but it it has devastated the lives of many ordinary people who are not rich. They Mm. were given advice and now they're being penalised for taking the advice. Mm. I cannot believe that a Conservative government would um, bring in IR35, which penalises independent contractors. They don't seem to understand the nature of entrepreneurs. And if you're going to encourage economic recovery after coronavirus, it's not going to be the big companies that get us out of this entirely. It will be the small and medium-sized enterprises that uh, spring up, take advantage of the opportunities that they've got. But they need to be incentivized to do so. They need to think that it is worth taking the risk because it is a risk. I've started six or seven businesses in my life. And each time you do it, you you think, am I doing the right thing? Is this going to work? You're, You're risking your own money more importantly you're risking other people's money as well and in the end you've got to be confident that the risk is worth taking and and there regulation has now got so out of hand in in many areas that a lot of people i think are put off from starting a new business and that that is not how it should be in the 1970s we got to a point in in our country where again there were too many barriers to people starting businesses the the unions were all powerful i mean that didn't necessarily affect new businesses so much but taxation was at such a high level that people just didn't think it was worth the candle now that changed in the 1980s and you had all of these free market think tanks explaining the virtues of capitalism explaining the virtues of the free market economy where are all those people now there there is no one putting the case for capitalism Uh, politicians don't seem capable of doing it and the think tanks are not wholly but largely silent on the issue and so whenever somebody says oh we should spend 350 million pounds more on this project or that project that there's no one there to say hang on a minute think again wouldn't that money be better spent actually incentivizing people rather than putting new regulations on on them so i think that, that a lot of this argument goes by default And I I do a weekly business hour on LBC at the moment, and it is just brilliant actually being able to talk about business because where else on the British media at the moment does anyone do that? You you have cursory two-minute business bulletins on Five Live. The Today programme largely ignores business unless there's a pressure group that is wanting to regulate it more, and then, of course, they get free reign. You've got Evan Davis, haven't you, and the bottom line? I guess on on Radio Four. Yeah, and he do, he does Dragons Dead. I'm not saying there's no business programs, but given given that we that the whole of 
the welfare state is reliant on people paying their taxes and business paying their taxes to exist. You would think maybe that our public service broadcaster might give a little bit more time to the world of business. And it's not just them. There's many others. I think we ought to be doing more as well. So I'm not saying that we're we're perfect. Mm. Um, I've introduced a section on my news hour each Thursday where I have somebody from uh, Jefferson coming on to explain all of the good news in the world of manufacturing, because we are led to believe that we are a terrible manufacturing nation. We're still the ninth biggest manufacturing nation in the world, but I doubt many people know that. So we have a business report every day at 7.25 or so. And inevitably at the moment, that's full of bad news. So I thought, well, actually, you know, there are people investing in this country. There are lots of companies creating lots of new jobs. Let's hear about it. But it's very rare that you ever hear any positive news from the world of business. Now, you mentioned the the businesses that you started, and I thought I'd just finish up by getting you to uh, talk a little bit about books, because, uh, you know, you you say in your kind of manifesto at the end of your book um, that that people need to to look at more kind of long form uh, formats. But you've always been a real bibliophile, haven't you? I mean, what what started your your love of books, and why do you think that books, after being in some ways kind of written off for a while, um, do still seem to be holding their own? When I was a child, I would read, I think, possibly more than most children, and it was uh, the traditional books of the time, sort of Enid Blyton, The Magic Faraway Tree, Watership Down, that that mm. sort of thing. Uh, and then I got into politics at a relatively early age. And I can remember going to London probably at the age of 15 or 16 and immediately heading for Foils, which in those days was a real rabbit warren of a of a bookstore. Mm. And their politics <laughs> department, you would find books that had been there for probably 20 years, Times Guys to the House of Commons. I remember starting a collection of those at the age of 16. Mm. Um, uh, and I always loved reading books about core politics also political biographies and autobiographies that that's really my first love and in the mid 1990s I, I spent a lot of time in washington dc it's my favorite city in the world and they had a shop called political americana and it wasn't a bookshop they did have a few books but there was another one it was mainly political memorabilia and campaign materials and then there was another one called politics and prose which was the from the name you would think it was a specialist political bookshop it actually wasn't but it was a place where a lot of politicos used to hang out and then another one called Kramer books and afterwards which had a, a coffee house in it as well which mm. i'd never seen before and i just kept thinking to myself why isn't there one of these in london and um, I was running uh, a political lobbying company which specialised in transport issues at the time. And um, I had a big falling out with a guy I was in business with, so I left. And so I thought, well, okay, well, let's start this. So I, I then opened Politico's in the spring of 1997, just before the Blair landslide election. And it was a revelation. There really was an appetite for this sort of thing. And that lasted for seven years. And and I then started a publishing company to go alongside it because I kept getting people coming into the shop saying, have you got a book on X? I said, well, no, there isn't one. And when you get 40 or 50 people asking for the same type of book, you kind of think, well, there's a gap in the market here. Now, I knew nothing about publishing, but I thought, well, it can't be that difficult. So I started Politico's Publishing. Um, sold that five or six years later to Methuen, which was one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. And then I closed the shop in 2004 because Amazon had just started to catch on and the congestion charge came in, which reduced our footfall uh, by a huge amount. Um, And I thought, I can't sign a new lease on this because I don't think I'd be here in two years if I did. And that was a really horrible decision to take. So we put it all online. And then a few years later, 
I, I thought no one is publishing the kind of books that I used to publish at Politico. So I started mm. up Bite Back on the back of Total Politics magazine. And Bite Back, I think, I think overall I've published 600 books in my career. Now, I'm not going to su- suggest that I've published any real bestsellers, but I think I catered for a niche. And that's what a lot of the economy is about at the moment, mm. uh, for filling a niche. And I, I'm really proud of what I did there. And um, I left two years ago because I've been doing it for 10 years. And I, I, I normally have a five-year attention span of anything. So I've done radio for 10 years and, that, and I've done publishing for 10 years. And I was doing a lot more. I just got a gig on CNN doing a program three days a week. Mm. Something had to give. And I thought, well, you only get one chance in this life. I really enjoy the media side. I have enjoyed publishing. And there were a few other reasons, but that that was one of the reasons that I thought I, I'm going to get out of it. And I thought I would miss it incredibly, mm. but I haven't which is an <laughs> awful thing to say in many ways. I still put books by Back's way, um, and I still get a thrill out of helping bring a book to life. But it's a very difficult area to be in political publishing. It's always on a knife edge. The cash flow is terrible, or can be. And I've, I always found it quite a strain knowing that one wrong decision from me and 12 people would be out of work. And that's I mean, it goes back to our discussions on business. People automatically assume that any, an entrepreneur is only in it for the money. Well, if I was in it for the money, I wouldn't have been in books. Simple as that. Yeah. And it is a strain on you when you know that you have the livelihoods of so many people really at, at your control. Certainly at Politico's, there were days when I thought, I don't know how I can go on with this. I don't know how I'm going to pay the salaries at the end of the month. Uh, I always did. I, I don't think I was ever late, but there were several moments there where I could easily have gone under. And I, I, I haven't written about that hugely in the book, but maybe that's a separate one. Your current book, I would really recommend to everybody. It's a really, really interesting look at your career uh, and also uh, some very good tips actually on <laughs> becoming a radio presenter and being a radio presenter. And also, I think the manifesto at the end, as I say, has a lot going for it. It's called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? Shout Less, Listen More. Maybe we can finish by just saying, have you got any other books in the pipeline, Ian? Strangely, I have, Tim. Ah. <laughs> in November, I've got a book coming out called The Prime Ministers because next year marks the 300th anniversary of Robert Walpole coming to power. Now, he always denied that he was the Prime Minister, but he started to be called it, and he he thought it was an insult to him. (laughs) And one thing I I found out during the creation of this book was that it wasn't until 1905 under Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman that the term Prime Minister was actually used in any meaningful way. I think it was in some sort of legislation. What it is is 55 essays on the 55 prime ministers that we've had in this country since 1721. And there were some of them that, frankly, I'd never heard of. And I regard Mm. myself as sort of almost the ultimate political geek, but I had never heard of the Earl of Shelburne. Um, I'd never heard of Viscount Goderich, I don't think. And, And so commissioning people to write these essays, it's a mixture of politicians, academics, and journalists that have written them. It's been an absolute pleasure to do. It's going to be a bit of a doorstep of a book, but it's a brilliant Christmas present. Um, so it's, it's a big hardback book, 25 quid. So I'm doing, I've done it as an audio book, which is 25 hours. And also I've launched a series of podcasts called The Prime Ministers. So I interview all the different characters about the prime ministers they've written about. The, the first one's just gone live, Simon Heffer.
Schaefer on uh, Gladstone, which is, I think, one of the best essays in the whole book. It really mm. taught me a huge amount about Gladstone. Mm. So, so I'm now thinking, what do I do next year? Now I've got a few ideas. Well, goodness, we'll we'll have to have you on again if you'll come on again to talk about that book because that does sound absolutely fascinating to, to someone like me. And I, of course, have heard of both of those prime ministers. I should assure everybody. <laughs> well, Ian, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, to all our listeners, thank you very much for listening. Thank you also to Sophia Cassano for producing. And please join us again in another Mile End Institute podcast.